everybody. I just want to let everyone know that there is additional seating on the second floor. Um, we have a live simulcast feed. If anyone wants to go upstairs, there's about another 150 people upstairs. So it's really exciting to welcome you 600 or so people to this event. It's really a milestone for both the community and obviously the SCA to be here to have both Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs and Rabbi Joey Dweck addressing us as a community. So welcome. I also want to thank, um, obviously, Jaime Shammer, the president of the SCA, for everything he does for the community and the SCA. And no SCA event uh, would be complete without thanking Morris Bailey, Mr. Morris Bailey, for his leadership, his vision. So just a, a few words before we get into the main show, because I know you guys didn't come to see me. Throughout Jewish history, Jewish leadership has always been a bipartisan effort. From Moshe and Aharon to David and Natan, there has always been a collaboration between religious leaders and secular leadership. The religious leaders guide the people to fulfill the word of God, and the secular leaders assure the Jewish people a secure and safe future. A society in which being a Jew expanded well beyond the walls of the practices of the Beit Midrash and into the character and integrity of society in the hopes of fulfilling the commandments of becoming a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Over the last 20 years, the SRC, the Sephardic Rabbinical College, an SCA affiliate and a community institution, had the vision and foresight to lay the groundwork to make sure we, as a community, had the religious leadership to build and built and bred from within our community. Individuals that not only embodied the religious values of tradition we hold true, but also the same cultural, social norms, and last names that we grew up with. 18 years later, and over 30 graduates strong, our rabbinic leaders of the SCA our many SCA schools and shuls are being led by graduates of the institution. Consistent with Jewish leadership over the years, the SCA, Sephardic Community Alliance, serves to assist our rabbis in making sure our community adheres to, it, to our ideals, ideas, and values set forth by our community founding fathers over 100 years ago. The SCA holds true its value system and welcomes any institution within our community that will affirm and attest to these values. Similar to the ratification of the U.S. Constitution almost 250 years ago, our Declaration of Values is non-compromising and eternal. As I, stand before you, uh, as I stand before you today, I cannot help but think back to my first college homework assignment. Almost 15 years ago at NYU, we were required to take a class on cultural foundations, an overview on literature throughout the ages, starting, of course, with the oldest book known to man, the Epic of Gilgamesh, followed by the Bible. It was a Tuesday. The professor asked the class to read Genesis by Thursday. Now here I was, a 19-year-old kid, straight out of 12 years of yeshiva of Flapush and a year in Israel, in which it literally took full semesters to go through the stories of Bereshit. And now he had to read this in a day. How could that be? And that's when it became clear to me. To the professor, the Bible was no different than Shakespeare or Dante. The classics were the classics, and there was no Rashi or Rambam, just ground to cover and timelines to hit. It was just a story. Welcome to college. Welcome out of the yeshiva microcosm I was accustomed to, and welcome to a world with different views, beliefs, and foundational core differences of everything we were brought up with. How do we reconcile the two? How was I supposed to reconcile the next four years ahead of me with the last 12 years of my life? In order to be able to excel in college and my career, I had to revert back to the foundational values that I was given. I firmly believe that it is our job to be a light onto the nations, for us to be exemplary leaders in society for whom, we are, for whom we are and how we act. There's no room for an ethnocentric approach to Judaism that labels us as untouchables like the caste system of the 12th century. We were afforded the ability to contextualize the word of God that we hold so dear, 
take time to understand the true beauty of the Torah that was given to our forefathers 3,000 years ago. The duty to build a moral and responsible society that cares for the less fortunate, that treats all individuals with dignity and respect, and represents an existential being that is a sole lifeline for existence itself. A God that would leave more questions than answers, but gave us the tools to be able to apply the values he gave us to perpetuate a better world than we inherited. The SCA clearly understands this and was created to instill such values among 20,000 and growing constituents that make up its member organizations. I am honored and humbled to be here tonight and introduce you to two of the most global giants in understanding how to apply these values to our lives and to the universal Jewish world mankind. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, who I first met through his writings of the Dignity of Difference, a response to the horrific attacks of 9-11, has become a part of my family's weekly routine. Hardly a week will go by without discussing and internalizing the message in the Rabbi's Covenant conversation. Week after week, the rabbi takes a newfound approach to the parasha or holiday ritual and offers an inspiring and relevant approach to the Torah's eternal message. For the last 10 years, I have read many of the rabbi's books, often ordering them on Amazon UK because they get them months before the US site has the book. And time and time again, I find myself nodding while reading and thinking, wow, he really gets it. There is no other way to read this. Last April, my wife and I had the honor of hosting an intimate Saturday night with the rabbi Annie Lane Sachs and our closest hundred friends. We were able to ask the rabbi challenging questions that were troubling us, troubling us young emerging leaders. Question after question on ritual, contrary views, evolution of the Jewish thought, the rabbi could reassure and validate and continued and renewed a continued and renewed relevance to the founding values and operating principles of our forefathers and predecessors. Rabbi Joey Dweck also needs no introduction in our community. A dear friend and partner, Rabbi Dweck has taught me that the author of the Torah and the author of the world are the same and there are no contradictions. Rabbi Dweck inspired me to be able to see Hashem in everything we do and observe, in every breath we take, every sunrise and sunset we witness, to know God is existence and without him we simply would not be. The rabbi's appreciation of the arts and sciences has inspired me to buy countless books from Eric Fromm's Art of Love to Janine Benai's Biomimicry, Innovation Inspired by Nature. I said I bought them, I didn't read them. <laughs> Rabbi Dweck currently leads the S&P across the pond, still stays close to our community, inspiring both young, young youth and adults that the Torah is the infinite wisdom is truly the key for us as individuals and us as a nation to have the power to forge ahead and a path of continued success and leadership for our community and the world at large. I would also like to introduce Mrs. Denise Zami. Uh, Denise is currently a Bay Midrash Fellow at SAR High School in Riverdale and pursuing her MA in Tanakh at Bernard Revel Graduate School. She received her BA in Jewish Education from Stern College for Women. She's also spent a year of high school studying in, address, uh, in Israel at Midrash at Lindenbaum. Denise loves teaching in formal and formal Jewish settings. This past summer, she was assistant head counselor of Achva West, a West Coast teen tour for high school sophomores. And I just want to, what you're about to have is not a lecture from Rabbi Joey or Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, but it's really a moderated uh, question and answer forum that's going to be driven by you. It's going to be driven by the questions and the challenges that you, guys, that you have. Denise will be moderating. She has some great thought starters. We went through them earlier the, last week. But really, it's your opportunity to hear from Two individuals that, like no other, understand the challenges that you face on a daily basis, we all face on a daily basis, and give you their approach on how to, how to uh, tackle these issues. So without further ado, Rabbi Joey, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, and Denise, come on up. Good evening, everyone. I just wanted to begin by saying it is an honor to be here as a representative of the younger community. And I wanted to thank the SEA for organizing such an unbelievable event tonight with two really prominent figures. 
And I'd like to thank both of you rabbis for coming here tonight to share your insights with us. You both have been instrumental figures in my own religious journey, and I'm sure everyone in the room would agree the, the same for them. So thank you for, for being here. If, if you'd like to just start with some, any opening remarks that you would like to share. Uh, opening remark. Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> Denise, it's very simple. I have to say two things. Number one, you as a group, and indeed the SCA as an organization, are uh, one of the most joyous, enthusiastic, passionate, and committed groups of Jews I've met anywhere in the world, and I salute all of you. A special thanks to Morris Bailey, to Jaime Sharma, and all the people who make it happen but especially to you, because I just love it, and I do try to convert the Ashkenazim to become Sephardim. I haven't succeeded yet. Send them to me, Arab. But, I mean, kolagavod to you. That's, that's the good news. The interesting news is you ask the most difficult questions of any group I've ever come across. So thank you for the challenging questions, and I hope the answers will at least uh, be of interest and I hope move you forward. Thank you. Denise, it's great to be here. I'm glad that you're here uh, moderating. It's an honor to be sitting with you, to be sitting with everybody. I know um, I look very forward to this night. Before I say anything else, you know, the hachamim say, that a person is not allowed to speak before one who is greater than him in wisdom. And so I, before I open with the permission of Rabbi Sachs, um, it's an honor to be sitting here with the Rav, and uh, to present together to, to everyone who's come here tonight. I mean, you know, I spent 16 years in the Syrian community, uh, and uh, I watched many of you grow up and, and had the pleasure of being able to teach you, to teach your friends, your cousins, your brothers, your sisters. Um, so coming here is coming back home, and uh, it's great to be home for a few days. Um, so I'm, I'm on a special day of English well, weather. Thank you, Aram. <laughs> yeah, well, you got the pull. Um, yeah, and so I, I, I'm looking forward, and I, I look forward especially to hearing the questions from the audience and uh, to exploring together. Thank you. As we said before, we really want to hear from you, what's on your mind. So there should be a link that will appear on screen that will um, say where you should text in your questions to. Um, but let's... Let us um, begin. Being that we, uh, that we have two prominent figures here from different communities, I'd like to start with the following question. Oh, here's, here's the website, scaupdates.org slash ask. So text in your questions, and I'm going to be getting them here, and maybe I'll be lucky enough to have your question chosen. So I'll start with a question that I, um, that's on my mind. As opposed to the Ashkenaz community worldwide, and especially in America, our Syrian community is unique in that we do not have the divisions of orthodox, conservative, and reform. However, it's no secret that subsets of the community are looking towards the divisions of the Ashkenaz world. Some look towards the Haredi model, and others to the modern orthodox one, while some say that they do not fit into either of these models. What can we learn from the experience of the Ashkenaz community who has been here for longer? What model should we follow, if any? Do you think that we are destined to experience similar schisms as in the Ashkenaz world, or do we have our own Sephardic model? We can start with you, Rabbi Zouak. All right. You know, it's an interesting thing about the Sephardim. 
that um, we never developed these, these differences. And the truth is that, that it's the case, not just with our community, but pretty much around the world. Even the Western Sephardim, the Spanish and Portuguese, which I, you know, I'm, I'm leading now in, in, in England, there is no such idea you know, of, of these divisions. I think there's, you know, there's many reasons for it. Um, but no, I don't think that we're, we're looking to try and fit into a particular model. Uh, that's actually been something that has been our legacy. We've always looked at Torah, the Sephardim, I've always looked at Torah as Torah, and how close I am, involved I am, in terms of my participation may be varied, but the Sephardim have always recognized that as part of the nature of Klal Yisrael. You know, there are people that are closer, there are people that are further, but the standard of Torah has always been the standard. And so the question really is a matter of education. And the inclusiveness has always been a hallmark of our people. So no matter how close or far a person is in terms of their observance, there is an acceptance in general in terms of the community, almost everywhere in the world. The question is education. So I wouldn't uh, so much think about responding in terms of what model do we want to look at. More important, I believe, is a question of how are we educating? And to what level are we educating? Uh, and that's really where everything lies. It's the key to everything. You know, I, I, uh, there's one story that keeps coming up in my mind, thinking about, you know, talking about the future and how it is that we're, we're going to move forward. And I, I was teaching Sunday mornings about six, seven years ago, Morene Bukhim. And I had one older man who was always coming to the, to the shiur, and he, he told me a story about his grandson and his son. So his grandson was wearing pajamas with dinosaurs on them. And it was a very traditional family, for lack of a better term. And uh, you know, his grandfather turns to his grandson and he says, oh, you know, Moshe, you're, you're wearing dinosaurs on your pajamas. And his son comes running into the room and says, Dad, Dad, don't say that. He said, what's the matter? He goes, I, I told him they're dogs. <laughs> and you know, the question is, that's the bigger question. Can we create, our, our, you know, as far as Faradim are concerned, our community is our community. We embrace everybody. But how are we going to move forward in terms of, in terms of the future? I know, I'm sure that there are many people in this room, uh, and I know that I'm, you know, I, I had this experience growing up as well, that to some degree we have to, we have to hang our reality at the door when we want to go speak to a religious leader, a religious thinking person. I mean, am I alone in that? Has anybody felt that? So that's the issue that, that I think is most pertinent that we have to address. Um, and we should bank on the fact and build on the fact that as far as the Sfaradim are concerned, we are less concerned with what box we're in and more concerned and should be more concerned about what level of education are we instilling in the, in the community and our people. Thank you. Denise, I want to ask, answer you by stepping back and looking at the panoply of Jewish history. Some of the world's greatest empires set themselves to attack either Jews or Judaism. Every one of those was the superpower of its day. Egypt of the pharaohs, Babylon, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the empire of Alexander the Great, the Roman Empire, the medieval empires of Christianity and Islam, all the way up to the Third Reich and the Soviet Union. Every one of them seemed to bestride the narrow 
world like Colossus. Every one of those has been consigned to history. And our tiny vulnerable people can still stand and say, I'm Yisrael Chai. However, three times in our history, we lost our land, our home, and went into exile. The first time, Joseph and his brothers going to Egypt. The second time, the Khurban Bayit Rishon, the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem and the Babylonian exile, and the third time in the days of Rome. All three times for the same reason. Joseph and his brothers, Lot Yachlu, Dabro Shalom. There was a division within the family. They couldn't talk peaceably with one another. In the case of the first temple, after only three kings, Saul, David, and Shlomo HaMelech, the kingdom divided in two, and as another Abraham, not Avram Avinu, but Avram Lincoln, said, a house divided against itself cannot stand, and therefore the northern kingdom conquered by the Babylonians, the southern, uh, by the Assyrians, and the southerns by the Babylonians. When it came to the Roman siege of Jerusalem, Josephus tells us that the Jews inside Jerusalem were more intent on fighting one another than they were on the enemy outside. In other words, the biggest empires couldn't defeat us, but we managed to defeat ourselves. There is only one nation on earth that can threaten the Jewish people, and that is the Jewish people. So never allow ourselves to become divided. Those divisions began in the 19th and 20th centuries. Germany produced reform and then conservative Judaism and took it here to the States. Uh, Eastern Europe divided between religious and secular and took it to Israel. And so American Jewry and Israeli Jewry is deeply divided. There are only two groups that never went that way. One of them was the sort of Anglo-Jewish model that I call inclusive orthodoxy, which you also find in Italian Jewry, French Jewry, South Africa, Australian. And the other one is the Sephardi community. Those two remained inclusive communities. And that is how Hashem wants us to be. You know, we pray every, every yamim noraim, asu kulam aguda achat, make all of us into one unified band. And the truth is that the more open a community is to diversity, the bigger it becomes, the richer, the more diverse. So I want to say never go down that route to division. Just be very, be very honest, be blunt with ourselves. It took four generations for the world of Islam to divide between Sunni and Shia. It took, <clears throat> you know, in the 16th, after the Reformation, 1517, European Christianity split into Protestant and Catholic. The result was wars, violence, murder, destruction. God forbid that we should ever be so divided from one another that we don't see ourselves as one people. So never go down that Ashkenazi road of division. Just forget it. We have that on. What? We have that recorded? Uh, please, just don't follow us, okay? <laughs> You remember the story of Reb Chaim of Sons? 
A man is lost in a forest for, for days. He can't see it, find a way out, and he can't see anyone. Suddenly, he looks up and sees a stranger coming toward him. And he says, ah, the stranger will show me the way out. They come, they come together, and the stranger says, friend, show me the way out. And the stranger says, I can't show you the way out because I too am lost. All I can say is, don't go down the path that I've come from, and now let's find a new way together. So I say to Sephardim with Ashkenazim, as I say as an Ashkenazi, don't go down that path that we came from, and now let us walk into the future together. Amen. So, I would just, Rabbi Sachs, I would like to ask you as a follow-up. You've said that our greatest defeat is when ourselves are divided within the Jewish community. So, more than just the division of the Ashkenaz or Sephardic, what would you say about a religious pluralism? Does such a thing exist? Is that an ideal? Should we be having dialogue with people of other denominations? Look, I think the truth is, and it's a difficult one, and Rabbi Dweck will know, I'm sure, by now, your experience in Anglo Jewry, that it's very tense. It's not an easy thing at all. And in truth, I found this very difficult as chief rabbi, because on the one hand, everyone knows I'm an Orthodox Jew, and on the other hand, Klape Chutz, as far as the public was concerned, I was the voice of the Jewish community, so the non-Orthodox Jews found this very difficult. How come this man who doesn't daven in our shuls and won't enter our shuls is speaking for us? And I kind of, you know, I found this very difficult. My, I could feel that pain, but I didn't know what to do with it. In the end, after a period of turbulence, I said we have to have a principled stand on this. And this is the principled stand I took on all matters that affect us as Jews, regardless of our religious differences, we will work together, regardless of our religious differences. And on, on all matters that touch on our differences, we will agree to differ, but with respect. So I work together with non-Orthodox Jews and non-Orthodox rabbis on interfaith relations, on fighting anti-Semitism, on defending and celebrating Israel, on welfare, on student life, and all the rest of it. We worked together right across the board. When it came to shul life and school life, where we couldn't work together, at least we didn't speak badly about one another. We learned to respect one another, because if you want to receive respect, you have to give respect. So we managed that, and it was a principled position. And they realized that there were certain things that I couldn't do. And when we applied those principles, we finally achieved Shalom Bayit. I have to say, it took me about 15 years to get there, so, but, uh, and there were turbulent it's years. It's stuck. But what? It's genuinely that way. I mean, it's, it's, we, it's we really the way that we We got there. Harry Dweck, would you like to respond? Yeah, I mean, listen, it's, it is a very difficult issue. You know, for me in the work, you know, I thank, thank goodness that Rabbi Sachs brought it to that point in, uh, in England, and it genuinely does run that way. And I have very good relationships with all of the different leaders of the different denominations in Judaism that are in that country. And it's a, it's a bit refreshing, I have to say, because there is an understanding that we have a common goal as Jews, even if we have 
strongly different opinions, strong different opinions in terms of how we understand Torah and ultimately the religion. And, and there always needs to be that underlying understanding that, uh, that at the end of the day, how many are we in the world? You know, what's our percentage in the world? With the entire world trying to get at us and our hands tied behind our backs. So when we are together and we have any capacity to be able to support each other and keep our, keep our, our, our unity and solidarity, we really do have to strive for it. But I think that the fear is that when it comes to those ideological issues, when lines are blurred and not clear, that's when the fear sets in. And so that's where there has to be education, there has to be real understanding. The more we are aware of our, our vision, our understanding, our scholarship, the stronger that we are and the more we can work together as a people to be able to find unity. Thank you. I want, before I take the audience questions, I just want to shift the discussion a little bit. One area in which we see lots of differing opinions, um, whether it's Sephardic, Ashkenaz, Reform, Conservative, Orthodoxes, regarding the role of women in Judaism. So here in our, in our community, many of our grandmothers and great-grandmothers who, while they, were the, they are the matriarchs of our family, were never educated in the religious sphere. Today we see a huge change happening as the women are educated alongside the men. The women are teachers, leaders, and integral to passing on our heritage. I wanted to ask you, what is the ideal role of women in Judaism? And should there be, is there a different role between men and women? Do we still have more to change in this area? And if, if so, what? Um, maybe we'll start with you, Rabbi Dweck. I know that you spoke about some changes that your own synagogue was facing regarding this issue. Yeah. Well, I have to say, I mean, you know, our, our grandmothers and great-grandmothers may not have been educated in the traditional sense, you know, but they were pretty educated as far as, as, far as our traditions were concerned. I mean, my grandmother, may she rest in peace, she knew Berkat Amazon by heart. She prayed full tefillah every day. I mean, she... she, she knew these things by, almost by osmosis, by, by hearing it from her parents, her, her mother, her father, and theirs before them. But you're right, I mean, you know, there wasn't formal education. And uh, that has to move with the times, it really does, because uh, the way that we live in the world today is that there is no differentiation in terms of how it is that we're educated. Um, you know, our community, the Syrian community, is coming up on this. You know, it, it wasn't tradition, I think it's important for us to recognize and say, it wasn't tradition even for many of the girls to go to university. You know, we're coming into that, that the girls are going to university, the boys are developing forward that way. And when you have a world where every bit of information is accessible, literally at a touch, um, we cannot expect that information is just simply going to come in out of the air. And our, our sons and our daughters, it is our responsibility to make sure that they are educated and that they feel empowered. And that actually is a requirement of the Torah, that a, a parent must be sure that both their boys and their girls, their sons and their daughters, are empowered and, and provided with all that they need to be full-fledged members of society. And education is no different. And so from that perspective, absolutely it has to happen. I mean, what happened, you're referring to what happened in my community uh, in England. Um, it's a very patriarchal society. And especially, you know, that's one thing that Sfaradim kind of, we keep towing that along. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's one thing that I'd like to turn to the Ashkenazim and say, maybe we could learn a thing or two. Um, it's a patriarchal system. Even in the Western, you know, Sephardi world. Uh, and there were, women were not allowed to sit on the board. 
for 350 years. Um, and when I came in, one woman was allowed to be on the board. Uh, and we changed that. And so now it is equal that women and men can sit on the board, and I insisted on it. As a matter of fact, even when I was here, uh, head of school at Barkai Yeshiva, uh, I insisted that there were women on the board. Uh, it's essential to our leadership, it's essential to our sons and our daughters to be able to see that they should be able to be completely involved in how it is that we run in our communities and our societies. So I'm, th I'm grateful that I was able to do that in England, I'm grateful that that happened here when I was here, but it's only the tip of the iceberg. I mean, it really, we have a great deal to move in, that, in terms of that direction. Thank you. Rabbi Sachs, what have uh, you seen in your synagogue in your time regarding this matter? What uh, struck me here in terms of the Ashkenazi world is when the whole issue arose, and it arose really in Eastern Europe in the 1920s with Sarah Shanira and the Beit Yaakov school movement, the people who really gave her the bracha to do what hadn't been done before, to give girls the same kind of formal education as boys had, don't forget the Rambam himself rules like Rabbi Eliezer in the Talmud Yerushalmi, and he takes a negative approach to this. And believe me, even though Rambam was Sephardi, we've made him an honorary Ashkenazi as well. <laughs> Good so so um, what is striking is that the people who gave their bracha to Sarah Shanira were not people in the modern Orthodox world. They were the Chofetz Chaim and the Gera Rebbe. Here in America, the people who really fought for women's education were the late uh, Rav, uh, Rav Yosef Soloveitchik, and the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Both of them really fought for that, and uh, they were both very courageous. So, you know, these were the Gedolim Sheba Gedolim. These were the absolute giants. And they said it has to happen because the previous situation, which had endured for centuries and thousands of years, was that women really didn't go out into the world, and therefore they learnt by seeing, not by formal instruction, but as soon as women started going out into the world, going to university, going, having careers, all of the Gedolim understood that they have to receive an education. Now the question is, is there a difference between what women bring to Torah and what men bring to Torah. And I say that if you look through Tanakh, you will see two verses in particular that talk about the difference. Malachi talks about kisifte koin yishmerudat, and koinim were men, they weren't women. So he's talking about men's Torah, and he says, Torah emet alpihu, the law of truth was on his lips. The last chapter of Sefer Mishlei, which we say every Friday evening, which talks about Eshet Chayel, says, Torat Chesed, Alashona. There's a difference between the Torah of truth, which can sometimes be quite harsh, and the Torah of Chesed, which is never harsh, which is always human, sensitive, emotionally, subtle and, and literate. And that is what women teaching Torah will bring. They will bring the chesed back into Torah. Now, 
Elaine and I had the great privilege of knowing <clears throat> when we were at university uh, 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 a woman who's become one of the great Torah teachers of our generation. She was writing a doctorate on English literature at the time, but you all know her by the name of Aviva Zornberg. And you read Aviva Zornberg and you are reading Torah Chesed. So therefore I think that there has been a woman's voice that has been missing from the conversation of Torah for many centuries and it's coming back in our time. Now what gives us the right to do this? And the answer is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and I hate to break this to you, that not only was HaKadosh Baruch Hu not Ashkenazi, he wasn't Sephardi either. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> Moshe Rabbeinu was obviously Sephardi, but HaKadosh Baruch Hu was above these things. When it came to giving the Torah to Israel, said to Moshe Rabbeinu, Kol Tomah Levet Yaakov, Fataged Livnei Yisrael. And Chazal said, and Rashi brings it in his commentary, God gave the Torah to women before he gave it to men. So what we're seeing with this return of formal education for women is the situation that Hashem created on Sinai, and we're seeing this wonderful renewal through the women of Torah of our time. Thank you. Thank you. Now we'll uh, start with taking some of your questions. The first question is from Joe Batesh, who asks, some of, um, he says that, some of our brothers and sisters and friends move away from the community for four years to go away to college. How can we bring our community values with us, and how can we make sure that Torah remains a relevant foundation for us? And I would just add, since we're talking about change, such as uh, women's issues that are going on, this is something clearly new that's been happening in the community. Do you think there is a danger even for kids to go away uh, to, to college and not be staying in their community for those four years? You want well, to I, I tell you very, very simply, First things first, go to a college where there are a lot of Jewish students. There's strength in numbers. Don't go to a place where you're going to be very isolated, where overwhelmingly you're surrounded by non-Jewish values, and some of them today, sadly, have become very hostile through the BDS movement, which is affecting a number of college campuses here in the States and in Canada as it's affected for uh, some years now, college campuses in Britain. So the first thing is go to a place where, where you have really good uh, uh, support. I, you know, in, in, you have Yale and Harvard and Princeton and the Ivy Leagues, we only have Oxford and Cambridge. Um, I had the privilege of studying at both Cambridge and Oxford. Oxford had Jews, but kacha, you know? Whereas Cambridge, they once said about Cambridge that Hashem doesn't daven in Cambridge because it's too from for him. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so I spent my undergraduate years in Cambridge and I found my whole Jewish identity was strengthened, not weakened. But, so go to a place where Jewish life is strong. The second thing is, um, somebody once said to me, how many Norwegians are there in Washington? 
I said, I don't know, how many are there? He said, well, not many. So it's very easy if you're a Norwegian in Washington to assimilate. He said, but there's one family in Washington where they're so proud of being Norwegian that they have the Norwegian flag in the front garden. They observe all the Norwegian holidays on the walls. They have pictures of Norway. That family will never assimilate. Which house is it? The house of the Norwegian ambassador. He said, ambassadors never assimilate. So if you're going to college, go there as an ambassador of the Jewish people, and you will never assimilate. This is the thing. It starts before college. You know, I mean, um, it is a very important, it's very important that wherever it is that we go, when we're not home, that we take the ambassadorial mindset with us. But as a community, we have a responsibility to instill within our children a sense of identity, so that when they do go out, they can be ambassadors. And uh, it's a complicated question. Because when we do, of course, there's no way to be able to really be a full standing individual in this world without being educated on a university level. It has to happen. And of course, it's the appropriate thing to do, but it is complicated and it is dangerous. Um, and we really, as a community, have to think about how are we educating our children in those terms? We're teaching them data, but how strong is our teaching of principles? of understanding what it means to be Jewish. So we're speaking to an 18 to 30 year old audience. Anybody over 30 here? Do I have to call security? Um, so you're hearing this and the question that you have to ask yourself is how was I educated? Did I get that education? And now that you're coming into adulthood, what will you do to ensure that your children, your younger siblings, the people that are coming after you are gonna make sure that they have that education. What will you do for yourself as the halakha is to teach yourself about those things? The Rambam at the, at the end of Masichet Brachot in his Perush to the Mishnah, he's, he writes almost passively one of the most powerful lines that I have seen in his entire Perush. And he says it outright. He says, Yakar be'enai. It is more precious in my eyes, to teach a fundamental principle in our religion and our belief, our faith system, more than anything else that I will ever teach you. And this is the Rambam speaking. This is the entire Torah the man put down. He told you unabashedly, you don't have to learn anything else but my book. I taught you everything. <laughs> right? This is the Rambam. And he writes that more important than anything, than any halakha, any detail, any data point, are the principles. Have you learned the principles? Are your teachers teaching you the principles? Are you pressing them to give you a framework of principles? The Rambam made sure to put 13 of them down in clear, succinct terms that anybody could take them with them wherever they go. So, so the issue of university is absolutely essential. There's no question about it, and, and of course, when we go, we should make sure to, to put ourselves in situations that are secure, but it starts before that. It starts when we're in second grade and third grade and fourth grade and how it is that we're learning and what is the nature of our Jewish identity and is that being intact? And that's something that the adults have a deep responsibility to, 
to make sure happens and that the younger generation has a responsibility to insist that it occurs. Thank you. We spoke about how important it is to maintain this unity within our community and how Rabbi Sachs, you said the Sephardic uh, model should not go down the Ashkenaz path. Um, so my question to, to both of you is, well, it's not my question from the audience. Their question is, how can we, how can we maintain this unity? And how can, is it possible to heal the rifts that have um, ensued thus far in, within our community? What, what would be the answer to trying to mending the gaps between the two communities maybe that have um, been created within our community? Within the, Syrian the Syrian community and or the world, uh, the Jewish world at large. Well, I'll, I, there's one thing that I find in terms of my, you know, my everyday experience, and that is that you you find people, you know, there are everybody's uh, in the closet, for lack of a better term, and in the sense of they feel that there is a world out there, they know that there is a reality out there that they sometimes are not allowed to speak about, or they're not, it's not accepted that you speak about it. And so you end up finding someone who is willing to entertain ideas, even though maybe outwardly you wouldn't expect that they're willing to entertain ideas, thoughts, questions. It begins on a human level. If we go out there and we judge everybody based on what we expect, their kippah, their dress, their neighborhood, and so on, uh, is who they are, then we're, we've lost the game before we've, we've even gotten out of the door. It's, it begins on a human level. And one thing that I've, I've understood in my, in my limited experience of being in the Jewish world, teaching in the Jewish world, growing up in the Jewish world, is that we are all human beings, we all want to live the best lives that we can, and when you find somebody, and you do find, that is interested in speaking and thinking uh, with you, that you build from there. So it starts from personal relationships. And we shouldn't be afraid to build those personal relationships. And sometimes, you know, Mark Twain said that travel uh, is fatal to prejudice and bigotry. Travel is important. To step out of our very familiar circles helps us to be able to see another Jew somewhere that we otherwise would normally not speak to and go over and begin speaking to that person. To be able to recognize that this is somebody that I share something very deep with. Um, and we, need, we don't necessarily do enough of it. We become very, certainly in the community, I mean, we've become very comfortable in what we know and how we do. And we should seek to step out and find other communities, do a Shabbat away, be able to, when you travel, go and see people in different communities. I know that there's a lot of people who go away on business in the community that suddenly you're in Hong Kong and you're sitting at a table with people that you never normally would never entertain a discussion with. Those are the most precious moments of your business trip because you're able to speak to people, Jewish people, that are coming from other parts of the world and experience a personal relationship that you otherwise wouldn't. And so all of a sudden the walls fall. And that's really what we need to happen. The walls need to fall and recognize that at the end of the day, we're all Am Yisrael. And that we're, we're in this world and we've, been, we've come to this point in history as we've been burned by the fires of the world. And we're still here. And so for us to be able to recognize that in our lives and our everyday situations when we go out is essential. And I think that we can. And I think, that, I think that the younger generation is more prone to it because as it is, the walls are falling. I mean, you know, you're able to contact and, and communicate with anyone in the world in a second with something that you hold in your pocket. 
Yeah, I mean, so the, the whole mentality changes as to where the walls are and what the barriers are. Yeah. Love that. Thank you. Um, three ways in which you can heal the divisions in the Jewish world. One, um, I learned from a very wise Israeli who for some years, an American who went to Israel, who for some years was running Hillel here in the States. And we bumped into him at the airport in Ben Gurion Airport. And he said, you know, I've just come back from the big Hillel conference. He said there was an Orthodox minion, a conservative minion, a reform minion, and a reconstructionist minion. And all four were Kalbach minyone. <laughs> Do you know what that is? Do you, uh, yeah? All four of them were singing the music of Rabbi Shlomo Kalbach. One thing that unites Jews is music. Why? Do you, did you notice that almost everywhere the Israelites went, they argued in the, in the wilderness? And yet, what do we read? Az, Yashir, Moshe, Uvnei Israel. Rashi says, not in his commentary to the Chumash, but his commentary to the Gemara, that Sharta Alehem Ruach HaKodesh, the divine spirit at Kriyat Yamsuf, at the division of the Red Sea, rested on them and they all sang together. Why? Because words are the language of the mind. Music is the language of the soul. So when it comes to mind, two Jews, three opinions. But when it comes to the soul, kulanu ke'ish echad echad. So music has an extraordinary power to heal. We may not be able to speak together, but we can sing together. Number two is in this week's parasha in Vayera. Vayisa einav vayav nashim nitzavim alav. Avram Avinu sees three strangers passing by and says, No, come in, eskizinta hate, whatever that is in... Would you translate that for me, Rabbi Dweck? Welcome. Welcome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, come and eat. <laughs> now, uh, we all know that Svadi cuisine, especially Syrian Svadi cuisine, is, comes directly from the angels and it's food fit for angels. I almost got into a couscous fight with a Moroccan when I said that. <laughs> so one way or another, food can bring people together. And I think that is what the sages meant when they said, Welcoming a stranger into your home, making them feel at home, giving them a, having a meal together. This can turn strangers into friends. So food heals, music heals. But the third one is actually very deep. I was worried some time back that the Jewish people would split apart in Israel between religious and secular, in Chutzlaretz between Orthodox and Reform. So I got a charity to donate to make possible a major conference in the summer of 2000 at the Hebrew University. I thought, let's start with academics, you know, instead of rabbis. I didn't know I could get all the rabbis in the same room. But we got academics from 92 different universities, 
from 16 different countries, academics from Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and, and from, from Kolazramim, all the strands in Jewish life. And after a day and a half, two days, I said to Elaine, it's been amazing, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is we have listened to some of the best speakers in the world. The bad news is we witnessed some of the worst listening in the world. Because everyone was speaking, but nobody was listening. So I said, I can't take this anymore because nobody's really open to one another. I said, in Israel, they have a man they call Admor Shel HaChilonim. You know, the Rebbe of the secularists. He's called Amos Oz. He lives down there in Arad, a long way away. I said, when there's an Admor in town, you go to visit them. So I'm get, there's, we've got a secular Admor out there in Arad. We're going to travel to meet Amos Oz. I'd never met him before. So my friend said to me, what are you going to do? You're going to convert him? I said, no, we're going to do something much better than that. We're going to listen to him. And we went and we sat with Amos Oz and we listened to him. And he became a very warm and special friend. And we've done conversations in public together. I will never forget his opening sentence when we did something together in Baralan. He said, I don't think I'm going to agree with Rabbi Sachs on everything, but then on most things, I don't agree with myself. So when I brought out a new translation of the Siddur, you know, the Koran Siddur, I translated Shema Yisrael, not as hear, O Israel, but as listen, O Israel, because hearing is passive, whereas listening is active. I think if we really listened to one another as Jews, we would hear the humanity that we share the history that we share, the goral, the fate that we share. So we spend too much time talking to and at one another and not enough time listening to one another. And good active listening can sometimes heal the divides between religious and secular as we saw with Amos Oz. And I think that we ought to take seriously Shema Yisrael. Learn, O Israel, how to listen to someone who's different from us. Thank you. I, I think I will share that with my students the next time they are mm. screaming over each other as they <laughs> usually do. Um, so we had over there music, food, and listening. I think the SEI has the food thing down as we have our young adult dinners. So maybe next event we have to have uh, some concert. Hang um, me, so get that down. Um, okay, the next question I think resonates with a lot of people here who I know it does for myself, which is those of us who have uh, religious doubts. So for those of us who might struggle with um, our doubts or, a st or are stuck on the question of truth regarding certain fundamental Jewish principles, how do you recommend they pursue their quest for answers with intellectual honesty? Rabbi Sachs, would you like to speak? <laughs> here's the story. Here's the story. I, I was studying, 
I never went to university to study to be a rav. I never even contemplated becoming a rabbi. When Elaine and I met and got engaged and got married, we had no idea that life was going to take us in this direction. But I was studying philosophy at Cambridge University, and the idea that you could be a philosopher and a religious believer in those days was a contradiction in terms. There were none. So obviously, studying with a lot of very clever atheists, I had many questions. I can't say I had many doubts, but I had many questions. And so one summer, I, uh, I remember it cost me $100. I bought a Greyhound bus ticket. And in the immortal words of Simon and Garfunkel, I came to uh, look at America, counting the cars on the New Jersey Turnpike. <laughs> so um, so I, I went around America, meeting all the rabbis I could meet. And I can't tell you how many extraordinary rabbis I met in <coughs> extraordinary places. And I asked them all my questions. So I really must have met 30 or 40 of the leading rabbis in the world. But as we were talking, and I was 19, 20 years old at the time, I was talking, two names kept coming up in conversation. One of them was Rabbi Soloveitchik, well known as the most brilliant Jewish thinker of the day. And the other one was the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneers, and the greatest Jewish leader of the day. And so I decided that if everyone is talking about these people in such hushed terms, I really had to meet them. Now, it took a fair combination of chutzpah and persistence to get to meet the Lubavitcher Rebbe and Rav Soloveitchik, but I met them both. I sat for an hour with the late Rav Soloveitchik Sitzal, and, you know, it was an extraordinary thing. That was while he's in the corridor of Yeshiva University, while his Talmudim were preparing for the Gemara Shia. I had a 20, 25-minute Yechidus with the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and those two encounters were encounters that changed my life. So I didn't just stay with the doubts or the questions. I went to meet the people that I thought either could answer the questions or inspire me at least to keep on searching. And I think that was the best decision, other than getting engaged to Elaine, that was the best decision I ever made in my life. So travel, journey, to the people that you would like to learn from. And even if they don't answer all your questions, at least they give you a role model of what it is to keep searching and keep growing spiritually. Yeah. It really is that. I mean, you know, I'm, I didn't realize that, that we share that in common. I mean, I, I wasn't planning to be a rabbi either, just that Marguerite's still waiting for me to snap out of it, you know. <laughs> but. Um, you know, we're here, and this is what's happening, but there's no, there's no question that, look, the intellectual endeavors are important. We do have to try and understand all that we can understand. But at a certain point, one has to realize that you cannot hold God in your head. And that the connection to God is the experiential connection. It's, you know, we read in the Haftarah last week, Yeshaya says, Halo yadata. Im shamata? I mean, haven't you heard? Don't you know? Can't you see that God is God? And, you know, you'd expect for a Navi to be able to be a little bit more, you know, steady than that, a little bit more thoughtful than that. And what, what Yeshaya is saying is look out at the world. Recognize that it is alive, that it's responsive, that the, 
that there is a spirit that flows through it all and that you can trust, you can trust your feelings and your emotions and your experiences when you are enthralled at the beauty of a world that you find yourself a part of, that you indeed are an expression of. You are part, you're not just an outside spectator, you are the world. You recognize that the entirety is part of you. So the, the, the relationships are essential when it comes to that. And to be able to, you know, you think about uh, Ruth and Naomi and Megillat Ruth, which is the, the paradigm of how it is that we see people coming into Israel and becoming part of, of those that worship the God of Israel. And what, is, what, is, what does Naomi do for Ruth? Does she sit and give her a whole shear? No, she doesn't give her a whole shear. Yeah, the hachamim say that there were a few halachot that she taught her. But essentially it was Ruth saying to Naomi, whoever your God is, that's the God that I want to be connected to. Wherever you go, that's where I'm going. Which means that Ruth saw in Naomi a holiness, something beautiful, something special in her soul that she wanted to connect to and she understood that through that was the connection she would have with God. She becomes the grandmother of David HaMelech. Not in her, in her astounding intellectual prowess. She becomes the grandmother of David HaMelech, the king of Israel, because she saw clearly in the world, through the expressions of the world, most importantly in a relationship, God. And that really is where it is that it lies. And so yes, I mean, uh, one is not to say that the Rav is, is correct, it doesn't need the validation of the point, but I absolutely agree with that. There's no question that the experience of God is in finding somebody that you, that you realize does see what Yeshaya is talking about. Ken yadati, ken raiti, shamati, I see it and let me share it with you. And so it's in that sharing, it's in that bond, it's in that love and connection that ultimately a person is able to, to feel it. And, and, and what's happening in the world today, and, and this is the last point I'll say, what's happening in the world today is that we are afraid to feel. Because everything has to be explained, proven down to the letter, and it's important that it should be, but there's more to it than that. There are things that we cannot put in words, there are experiences that we know in our heart and soul, and, and what, empowers, what empowered me growing up and learning was that I saw people that weren't afraid to have those experiences, to speak about them, to speak about their feelings and their, the, the spiritual movement that they had in the world. And that's something that we have to teach our children from the time that they're very young. They should never be afraid and embarrassed that they are moved by something beautiful, that they are, are yes, they are feeling Kiddushah, when they come to the Bet Knesset, when they hear a beautiful tune, when they hear beautiful words of Torah. That, that's something we shouldn't be afraid to teach our children and to empower them and say that, yes, what you're feeling, that is it. Yeah, and I think that that's something a bit that we're missing today and that we, we should not be embarrassed or afraid of, of speaking of, teaching, sharing, and, and feeling. Thank you. So um, the last, one of the last questions we'll ask uh, comes from Alisa Rudy, who happens to be one of my best friends, no big deal. And she, she got a shout out. She, she did oh get a God. shout out. She writes, as a graduate student at a well-known university, she's at NYU studying Near Eastern Studies, is that right? Right? Near Eastern Studies. She said, she writes, I am constantly exposed to, to academic denial of the existence of the Jewish people and a Jewish homeland. 
In fact, I find that the most vociferous of those in the administration who deny nationhood are the Jewish professors themselves. What do you feel is an appropriate reaction to someone like me who finds who, uh, someone like me who finds their very basic values being debunked. Are they right? How do we strengthen ourselves against this kind of existential criticism? Rabbi Sachs, would you like to <clears throat> begin? You know, sometimes Jews feel that we really don't have enough enemies. So let's <laughs> see if we can manage to multiply some ourselves. I find this kind of self-hatred pretty un unpalatable and unacceptable. Let's be absolutely blunt. The Jewish people has been a people for longer than any other in the Western world. It's been around for 4,000 years, twice as long as Christianity, three times as long as Islam. Everyone knows this. We know, of course, that people were always writing our obituary. The first <laughs> reference to Israel outside Tanakh is in the Menepta Stele, inscribed by Menepta IV, who was the son of Ramses II, the pharaoh that most scholars identify with the Pharaoh of the Exodus. The Menepta Stele was engraved around 1225 BCE, i.e. Uh, 33 centuries, 32 centuries ago. And it says, Israel is laid waste, her seed is no more. The first reference to Israel outside of Tanakh was an obituary. So incidentally was the second, written, it's the so-called Mesha Stele of 900 BCE, which says something very similar. And as Mark Twain said on reading his own obituary, uh, reports of my death have been somewhat exaggerated. So we are still here and still singing Am Yisrael Chai, but the evidence for the existence of Israel is massive and vast, and who on earth is supposed to deny it. Although there is somebody called Shlomo Sands who actually has mounted a really ingenious argument. You know, uh, what's it called? The something, the, the something of the Jew, the invention of the Jewish people, I think it's called, right? He's got this wonderful theory. I commend it to you. It's brilliant. First of all, he's worked out that the Palestinians are actually Jews because they were the Jews who stayed in the land of Israel when everyone had left and they were then forcibly converted first to Christianity, then to Islam. So they're really Jews. We Jews aren't Jews at all. We are descendants of the Khazars about whom Yudah Levi wrote the Khuzari. We are all actually Caucasians who converted to Judaism. So he's decided we can solve the Middle East problem between Israel and Palestinians by going and telling the Palestinians they're really Jews and telling the Jews they're not really Jews at all. This is a very, very creative diplomatic initiative. And if anyone believes it, I give them a prize for credulity. Um, so that's number one. The Jewish people has been a people longer than any other. And everyone knew this. And such was the bond of peoplehood 
that something unique happened. Sadiagan knows this in the 10th century because he's worked out that Jews remain one people despite the fact that they have none of the normal characteristics of a people. They don't live in the same country. They don't live in the same culture. They're not part of the same economy. They are not part of the same uh, political uh, uh, dispensation. They don't even speak the same language. Rashi spoke French in, as a daily language. The Rambam spoke Arabic. One way or another, they had nothing in common the only thing they had in common was the Torah. And yet, despite the fact that they were scattered all over the world, they knew and everyone else knew that Jews are one people. Everyone knew this. We were the world's first global people. For 2,000 years, we were the world's only global people. So that is Jewish peoplehood. As for Jewish nationality, the nation state of the Jewish people, Jews have had a longer connection with Eretz Israel than any European country has had with its own uh, geography, between the people and the population. You remember, in, no, you wouldn't remember, you're far too young. In 1835, <laughs> one rather anti-Semitic Irishman called Daniel O'Connell said to Benjamin Disraeli, whose father was Sephardi, but for various reasons fell out with the Spanish and Portuguese community <laughs> that you've inherited. Anyway, he, caught, he said to Benjamin Disraeli, you are, sir, are a Jew. And Benjamin Disraeli said, yes, sir, I am a Jew. And my an while your ancestors were painting themselves with woad, mine were chanting psalms in the Temple of Solomon. So even the British Parliament knew, everyone knows, that the Jewish connection with Eretz Israel is the oldest in recorded history. <coughs> and therefore, to deny Jewish nationhood or peoplehood, or to deny the Jewish connection with Eretz Israel, is crazy beyond crazy. Let me tell you, the holiest places in Christianity are, in Western Christianity, Rome, and in Eastern Christianity, Constantinople. In, in Islam are Mecca and Medina. So why is Jerusalem important to Christians and to Muslims only because it's important to us? Yerushalayim is mentioned 969 times in Tanakh. It's not mentioned once in the Quran. So Jews established the connection with Eretz Israel that then influenced Christians and Muslims to say, we have a connection. And they, of course, they fought and killed each other for several centuries during the era of the Crusades. So anyone who denies this is either crazy or a tenured professor in an American university. <laughs> and I say to them, grow up. The first thing you want to do if you're a teacher in university is to have the guts to acknowledge the truth and encourage your students to think for themselves and to discover the truth that we have been a nation longer than any other and Israel has been a home for longer than it has been to any other people. What, what more can I say? Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll come at it from the other angle. Because you're coming in to hear these people. 
And when you hear these things, if you feel at all uncomfortable or ill at ease, remember, Moshe Rabbeinu could come down and split the sea a hundred times. And it would pale in comparison to the fact that you and I are sitting here as Jewish people. It shouldn't have happened. We should not be here. We have gone through 30 centuries, if you start from Abraham Avinu, 40 centuries, with the world trying to destroy us, destroy us at every single point. We don't realize what it means to be sitting here, to be able to consider ourselves Jews, to speak of what it is that we're speaking about tonight, what it is that Jews across the world continue to speak about. You know, I mentioned uh, at my inaugural address, there is a man in, in London, his name is Jack Lunzer. He has the largest collection of Hebrew books, private collection of Hebrew books in the world, spanning a thousand years. And it was displayed here at Sotheby's in 2005 because he wanted to sell it. He had very clear stipulations of what he was going to do, but he wanted to sell this. And I walked in to, to view it. You know, it was here. I wanted to go see it. And it was displayed in an unbelievable way. You know, you would think, how do you display it? By subject? By author? By, by uh, you know, year? It was displayed by region, by country in which the books were written. So you walk into this place, and it hit me immediately from A to Z. There was practically not a country on this planet that wasn't represented there. That means that our people have been practically everywhere on this globe, with everyone trying to destroy us, and we're not just surviving, we're writing, thinking, and publishing wherever we are. The Torah has been with us throughout the entire time. That is, without question in my mind, the single greatest miracle that our people have ever witnessed. You and I are the living testimony to the miracle. So you know what that brings? It brings a tremendous amount of uneasiness to us and to everyone else. Because it's not just that we've been around for 3,000 years. Guess what happened? We came back home. We haven't been home for 2,000 of those 3,000 years. What were the odds that we would forget about survive, but we've survived it, and now we've come back home. So we have an address now on the planet, and no matter how far you dig down in that land, whatever it is that you find has our name written all over it. It's a little bit unsettling, because you know what it means for us? We're real. We have a responsibility. We have a legacy. We have an identity that is undeniable. What it means for everybody else, we don't go away. And so what are we supposed to do about that? What do you do when you have a people that have been on this planet, have been away from home, have been thriving, not just surviving, but thriving for 3,000 years? We don't go away. That should be at the core of all of our hearts. And let them say what they say. But the truth is in our very existence. To recognize that we are back home, a place that we left 2,000 years ago, is there a bigger miracle than that? Is there anything more that we need to be able to know what we are about and who it is that we're meant to be?
Yes, we fill in the details, but ultimately, it's such a powerful truth and such a powerful reality that the weight of it has people worrying about whether they're able to bear it. But there's no question. Our shoulders have bared it for 4,000 years. We can bear it. We should bear it not just as a weight, but with great pride. It's a crown, ultimately, that we're wearing on our heads. Wear it proudly. Thank you. So we're basically out of time, but I just wanted to ask a one-sentence piece of advice from each of you. Being that we are a room full of young people here who, God willing, soon will start families of their own, what would you say is the key to passing on our Jewish heritage and traditions and keeping the next generation inspired and wanting to be a part of the Jewish community? Build relationships and seek wisdom. Build relationships and seek wisdom. They are the most important elements of your life. Not more than that. The Al Sheikh asked a very simple question. It says, Vashinantam Lavanacha, you shall teach these things and hand them on to your children. And the Al Sheikh asked, well, how can the Torah tell us something that we, we're not sure we'll be able to succeed at? And he says, the Torah gives the answer just two verses before. If you love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might, you will hand it on to your children. The English poet William Wordsworth wrote this wonderful poem called The Prelude, in which he said, what we love, others will love, and we will show them how. What my late parents of blessed memory did not have the privilege of the kind of Jewish education that is open to all Jewish children today. They had to leave school young. They didn't know much. But one thing we knew, my three brothers and myself, without having them having to say a single word, was we knew they loved Judaism. They were Ashrei Yushvei When they were in Shul, that was their home. They handed on that love. So whatever love you have, you will communicate to your children. Love Hashem, and they will love Hashem. Love Judaism, they will love Judaism. It's that simple. Thank you. I want to thank, uh, oh, here we go. <laughs> I want to, first of all, thank Denise for some great moderation. So I, I personally had a lifelong dilemma being a product of an Ashkenaz mother and a Sephardic father, and I guess I chose the right path, according to what we learned today. Um, I also know that tomorrow I am leaving for Eretz Yisrael for my son's bar mitzvah, so I will definitely have the opportunity to share in some of the homeland that we, we discussed tonight. Um, but I really just want to take the opportunity to thank both the rabbis for really inspiring, uh, inspiring us and finding meaning and relevancy in these difficult questions that we face. You know, the night was titled The Faith in Our Future, and I think given the answers and the perspectives that we hear tonight from both Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs and Rabbi Joey Dweck, we really understand that the faith in our future is understanding our past. 
And I think looking to what was will enable us to understand what should be and what will be, and being able to leverage the roots and the traditional values that we were brought up with will enable us to bring both the community and the Jewish world into the future. So thank you very much. Uh, at this point, I would like to call up uh, Mr. Aimee Shama, the president of the SCA, to give us some um, updates on what uh, upcoming SCA events, as well as a thank you for the evening. Thank you, Joey. Thank you. Thank you for attending tonight's event. People vote with their feet, and you're here, and you're expressing to us, the SCA, what it is you want from us. And you can do more of that by completing our survey, or by visiting our website and completing our survey. We have your questions. We want to help answer them. Denise, thank you, rising star. Very excited that you were here. Rabbi Dweck opened by saying that he couldn't speak because Rabbi Sachs was on stage. How could we speak? But thank you, Rabbi Sachs. It's always a pleasure to have you here with us. <laughs> Rabbi Dweck, we have you in the summer. We look forward to seeing you again this summer, and it's a tremendous treat to have you again here this week. To have the two of you together on stage is truly remarkable. Thank you. At the close of this portion of the evening, please proceed upstairs to the second floor for a reception. I know you must be hungry, thirsty, or both. Uh, please come and stay and talk. I have a long list of thank yous. I'm gonna just say thank you to all those volunteers that helped us put this night together. The best place to go to find out what the SEA is doing is seaupdates.org. And to make that easier for you, Within a month or so, we'll have Torah2Go.com as the central place to find out anything happening with the SCA or any of our affiliates. If you check it out, you will see that we have women's program daily during the week. We have women's programs at night. We have young adult programs. We have a new class starting tomorrow night with Rabbi Sion Seton in the Brofman Center at NYU. That's a good one. Also, uh, additional infomercial on December 3rd, the Chayel Minyan is hosting a screening of the Jewish heritage, uh, this, the um, Joey Sitz movies. So <laughs> <laughs> that's in Sephardic at 6.30 on December, on December 3rd. On December 9th, the SCA is hosting a Friendsgiving dinner on a Friday night. Seven different kehilot coming together, and the rabbis of each of the kehilot will be in attendance, and there'll be a panel. And uh, that's also in, in Sephardic Synagogue on Friday night, December 9th. We really want to hear from you. Please visit our website. Please send us in your questions, because we can continue to create this type of programming if you allow us to. Earlier, earlier tonight, we had a remarkable session where we heard from the rabbis, and uh, Rabbi Sachs mentioned and we humbly accept his gratitude that the talet that we gave him last time he was in town, he uses every day. So we're hoping that not every day, but at least every Friday night, he'll use this. 
And maybe if they get together in London, they can toast. That is the close of the evening. I hope that you will please join us upstairs on the second floor for uh, refreshments, a light dinner. Thank, Thank you. you.